Okay, so now we're going. Yes, what we were talking about was is that as we get uh, on the spiritual journey, as we start living the Dhamma, as we begin to give up old bad habits that we picked up from our old associates, including family, then when we start to come out of that, we're no longer like them and that we tend not to associate with them. And that in fact, one of the things that the Buddha says in one of the sutras is, is that when people get their mind really clear, they tend to seek the company of seclusion, that they like being alone. And some people do that naturally, but it kind of goes against that herding instinct that we have, the nesting instinct or the socialization. You, I know, have been uh, quite into sociology, and that, to me, is the study of the herding instinct of humans. And it's quite worthwhile to study that, but we don't have to go so far into it. All we really need to study it enough is to recognize that it's dukkha, dukkha everywhere. <laughs> and so uh, people who are studying sociology then basically are studying um, how people mess with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that if we were all getting along and didn't mess with each other, sociologists wouldn't have much to do, would they? <laughs> that in a way, the goal of sociology is to get people to get along with each other so the sociologists don't have any work to do. Well, I, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, it's not... Um, yeah, it's more like seeing people's behavior, seeing the how they relate to each other and say something mm -hmm. about that. It's more kind of an observation how people, uh, yeah, how people live their lives in society. <clears throat> and, and, and the point is, is that if they lived happily and comfortably and very well in society, then sociologists would get kind of bored with that and wouldn't have much to study. No, there, are, uh, there are sociologists who study happiness too, but it's very difficult, they say. <laughs> <laughs> I got the joke. <laughs> I guess that means that they're studying happiness and that it's difficult because they don't find enough of it um, to study it, properly. It, it, it's difficult to measure, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, in that regard, living in a society that finds it very difficult to be happy to the point that even psychologists find it hard work to even find people happy enough worth study. That means that happy people generally don't want much to do with that kind of unhappy society. Mm -hmm. They tend to draw away from it and that the ultimate drawing away from it is to go to spend very little time with other people and when we do, we spend it very pleasantly and mm -hmm. great joy but that the time that we spend would be more um, conducive to uh, the joy. So in that regard, I guess it would be better to be saying that it's really, if you don't have a really good friend, it's better to have no friend at all than a bad friend. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet we generally will take friends wherever we can find them. And so we have those kind of effects upon each other. And that happened with you, that the effect of, uh, of being around other people, especially a child uh, under the influence of being around mom, will pick up the same bad habits and repeat them over and over and over again. This is the way it's done, the child sees mom. And so the child begins to behave like mom, but then 
they also begin to get because the mom uh, has also taught the child how to be critical mm. and, and offer criticism to the child. And so now the child learns that too also and becomes critical of mom. Mm. And so he begins to get really critical of mom and then later he'll make the statement of, I don't want to be like her at all without inspection and examination to find out that he is exactly like her. Mm -hmm. That it's um, uh, quite, let us say, due to um, influences or due to the, the, to the food that we eat. And when I'm talking about food here, I'm talking about fuel or intellectual nourishment, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in that regard, we become what we eat. If we keep eating unwholesome food from an unwholesome environment, we will have unwholesomeness in the mind. Mm -hmm. So when you learn to escape from that and now begin to have a wholesome mind, you don't want to go back to that same old delicatessen, say, of home to eat that mental food again. Mm -hmm. Uh, but but actually, that, oh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> but actually, my mother nowadays she's kind of she she's quite uh, sick now, and but she's very kind to me all the time, and she she even asks me, uh, well, this meditation thing, how do you do it? Can you teach me? <laughs> And, and then she doesn't well, remember. See, so that's what's happened that's so amazing, though, is that you have come out of the way um, of the normal thinking because you've made such good progress in the Dhamma. And because of that, you treat her well now, and she responds well to you treating her well. If you had treated her the way that you and she treated each other when you were a teenager, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you've changed. Congratulations. Give yourself credit for that, that you have been able to come out of a lot of that old stuff that um, plagues our entire society so that that's, that kind of behavior gets transmitted from generation to generation to generation. Okay. And, mm -hmm. and some of it is quite easy to see from the outside, but almost impossible to see from inside that family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The family members themselves cannot see what the family um, right. uh, storyline is, mm -hmm. basically, until yeah. we come out of it. And one of the ways to come out of it is by being physically away from the family, which is, um, uh, for Westerners, is, is very good. Um, where the Thai people, they tend to, once you're in a family, you're, you're in the family. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the family is actually quote, close knit, but I also see some, um, oh, let us say, uh, uh, an example of a long term, almost permanent, but it's, uh, at least very long lasting, very, very low class. Uh, situation that happened on a regular basis throughout all of the Western world, and that is, is that the husband and wife are not getting along. They opt for a divorce rather than mental uh, fixer-upper. Fixer They've divorced, they separate, and now there's the issue of child support. <clears throat> and it's an ongoing problem. Well, guess what? In Thailand, there's an e easy solution to child support. And that is generally the, the kids are going to be taken care of by the father's mother, if, or at least the boys, and the girls will be taken care of by the mother of the wife. M grandmothers are very, very deep into the family in, in, in Thailand, and it's a matriarchal system which means then that when the husband doesn't want to pay the child support, the one he's going to get it from is his own mother. She's going to make sure 
that he pays the child support. And so that's a very interesting way of taking care of it. And it tends to be much less of a problem here in Thailand than it is in the West. I mean, I would think that 20% of all court cases have to do with this one issue recurring mm -hmm. over and over and over again. So um, the, the point that I'm getting is, is that in some cases, having good family structures is an enormous benefit. But generally, the way the family systems have wound up in the West, they're not a benefit to each individual person. But in fact, it's something that we need to escape from. Just as Jesus was saying, let's have our family to be nobly inspired, nobly acting, high quality people. If you stay and live with high quality people, then that high quality is, <clears throat> let us say, uh, the medieval or the atmosphere in which we live. And so we tend to start behaving that way because that's how all of the examples are. This is why it's so valuable for you to uh, go and stay in a place that we've been talking about. Uh, uh, Aloka, is that the name of it? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. yes. Um, they're in Southern California, but they're on their own. They broke off uh, because they didn't need the help of the bhikkhus anymore. Mm-hmm. And they got it sustained. And not only that, if you if you noticed uh, on one of the pages, uh, was that there were two lay people there with the nuns yeah. that had been there long enough to get their photo on the website. Mm -hmm. How many others that are coming and going, we don't know. Yeah. One's already at the level of anagorica, which means she's dressing in white. And the other one is just, just a lay person. Mm -hmm. This is very common. Okay. And I want to emphasize that, that these watch and temples and things are open and available. All you have to do is have the enthusiasm and the trust to go for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. But going back now to that point about food or nurturement, uh, I spent quite a long time with the, uh, Catlin and um, uh, Chen Tan on uh, Sutta number 38 in the Majjhima Nikaya. And that Sutta, the name of it is the Mahatanha uh, Sanghatya Sutta. And that it means uh, it's got Tanha right in the name. And it's basically talking about the destruction of Tanha, but in the regard of the destruction of Tanha is the destruction of anything. When anything loses its support, its fuel, or its foundation, then it is subject to collapse. A king, for instance, who has no support from the people will collapse. And the same thing happens within family structures, and it also happens within one's own mind a lot, in the sense of tanha, when if we remove the supports from tanha, then tanha will collapse. When tanha collapses, then selfishness also collapses through a sequence of events like tanha leads to upadana or the grasping leads to clinging. I want it, leads to, uh, I got a habit, I got a habit, leads into uh, <clears throat> the clinging. But the clinging then, if I'm clinging to something, that means that I'm a prisoner to it. Why? <laughs> Never mind who won't let go. The fact is, is that you're not free from it. Mm -hmm. And so everything becomes a prison that way that we cling to. So if we, uh, uh, this clinging has fuel, and the fuel then is the tanha, the, the wanting it gives to the grasping. And the wanting comes from the feelings. But never mind the classical stuff, let's look at the fact of the relationship between anyone and his mother 
in the sense that mother supplies a fuel, a mental nourishment, and that that may be unwholesome nourishment. But that's what the child picks up and and, and owns it and creates it and uh, then nourishes it himself. We too can do that with wholesome skills, just like we've done with unwholesome things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, this is an example then of what we, what we think of or what we call magical thinking. Magical thinking is, is to think that something can exist without any fuel. That's the ultimate source of magic. And possibly the, uh, the deepest source of magic would be I am. As Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. When we say, therefore I am, or I am that I am, and that kind of stuff, that's an indication that I am, and I exist without any fuel. Which is magical thinking. That in, the, that in the Buddha's dispensation, in fact, we see that all oh, the self arises due to a fuel or due to a nurturement or due to a cause. And that everything happens with a cause. So that when we remove ourselves from the cause, that means that the effect will dwindle and die away. Generally so. It's likely to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, when two people stop arguing, more than likely, each one of them individually going his own separate way will settle down. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they used each other as a fuel for that argument. Here they are angry and angry and angry using each other as a fuel, but when they separate, the fuel is not there, and eventually the fuel uh, is consumed that they have and they mellow out, or they cool off. So, this is is such an important point for us to start looking at this cause-effect, or this Paticca Samupada, or this Ityapapajayata, in many, many ways. Because, in fact, the personality you have is the personality of your mom, but now you're not treating her with the same personality she treated you with. Now you're treating her with a new personality that you've developed mm. and that you're communicating with her. And guess what? She's joined your party, and I congratulate you for that greatly. <laughs> yeah, that's a miracle, actually, I guess. It, it is actually a miracle, isn't it? <laughs> And so keep remembering that nothing exists without a cause. This is one of the issues of why people get hung up in religion is because it looks like uh, that, you know, the magical world of afterlife and whatever uh, sounds like a good idea, but they don't inspect it from the issue of what is the cause? What are the sources of the power? Um, we can look at it from an engineering or a physical or, or a physics perspective. And just, you know, 2,000 years ago when all of that stuff was uh, going on, uh, we didn't have the scientific background, nor did we understand this very simple concept that the Buddha found out that is, in fact, the, of the source uh, or the foundation of all science is this issue of causality, that this causes that. All right. For instance, the sun shines because of the fire inside the sun. If there were no cause and effect, the, the sun could shine on internally, but the light never gets to the surface, and then we would what? You know, we'd be in the dark just the same. And look at all the other tens of billions of different kinds of causes and effects that are happening all the time. Mm-hmm. That we're in a sea of cause and effect and cause and effect. And that sea of cause and effect means that everything is in turmoil. Everything is in flux. Everything is constantly changing. And if that's true, then so can you. You can change too. 
that in fact the very uh, deeper things that um, that came about from uh, the way that your mom treated you, without having to go into any of the details of it, you can get over that so that you don't have to respond to her the same way that you would expect her to respond to you. That we can change. That whole idea of change is really, really something that's um, quite noble as a concept. Because, in fact, you could think, you can see it this way, that Christianity is based upon uh, the concept that people can't change. That, oh, you need Jesus to save you. You can't save yourself. You can't make that kind of a change. You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to act good. But you still are not going to be good. You're still going to have a sinful nature, so they say. So that means that you need Jesus to save you. But in, in fact, in that, they're actually talking about a cause-effect relationship. In the sense that, Jesus comes and now you're saved. Except I never that, understood that. How can that be? I, I, don't well, really... I can understand that you don't understand it because it flat out doesn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it flat out doesn't work. Mm. That I guess it could be possible for someone to be baptized, a smart person. I don't know why a smart person would do that but a very intelligent person, and he says, okay, this ceremony is, is going to work. Now that I've taken this ceremony and Jesus has saved me from my sins, I'm going to act and live and, and enjoy that. Mm -hmm. And he walks away very mindful of any sin, which we could actually talk about in the sense of dukkha, mm -hmm. and that he's going to abstain from dukkha. The problem generally is that he hasn't gotten the mind developed enough to see Dukkha clearly. Nor that, does he have the school, the skills to actually deal with the Dukkha. But he would go away determined that he is going to be free from Dukkha. So, so that, is that... Go ahead. Please say, you go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to ask, it seems to me that uh, sometimes I try to change, I try to uh, do things uh, to make it different, but nothing happens. It's not until I see things, um, what's what this is actually about, then it kind of vanishes in a way. I. I Exactly so. Once we see things really with full understanding, once we see something how it is, we don't go back. Okay. Uh -huh. All right. But when we use it as part of the rules, we've learned it as a child or we learned it in a Dhamma lesson or we've heard it and we think it's a very good idea, so we make a rule out of it. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. But we still have the propensity and the intention to do it because we've not yet have seen the dukkha uh, in it. Okay. Once we see it with full comprehension, once we see that it is such wrong-headed, that we're, we're actually, uh, the Buddha talks about this in the sutta, that if we hold to views that things exist without a cause, that they don't have fuel for their fire, then that is going to always continue to wind us up in a woeful state. We're going to wind up uh, in, in pain, in suffering, and uh, uh, do things to our detriment. Okay, okay, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Right, yeah. but when yeah. we begin to see that, oh no, this, if I do this, it will have an effect. Yeah. I cannot create this cause and mm -hmm. let it have no effect. That's mm -hmm. exactly one of the ideas, is I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ah, I can go ahead and shoplift this now because there's no store, store clerks around to catch me. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the kids will shoplift because they don't see a deeper danger in it. Mm-hmm. The deeper danger is, is that the mentality that they develop, I can get away with it, 
is going to be there at a time when, oh, no, you can't. No, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. no. You're, you're, you can't get away with it every time. So, so, so do, do you, are you saying that um, what we learn is how it is? That, that we don't have a, a sense in ourselves that uh, this is not the right thing to do. Exactly. We haven't seen the dukkha yet. Uh -huh. That we've just we've just been informed that it is dukkha. But okay. in a way, we have to test it for ourselves anyway. Uh -huh. The question is, can you test and then get a good observation of your test, the results of the test, so that you can firmly understand? You know, I don't have to keep doing that over and over again to prove it to myself. I can see it for sure right now. Okay, <laughs> now I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one, and this is uh, this is why the Buddha talks about uh, uh, right, deep understanding, clear comprehension. These are the kind of words because otherwise we just make a rule out of it. Oh, now I see. I I I think I haven't understood those words uh, in, in a way. Yeah. Now I see. Mm -hmm. And that means, and this is, uh, again, back to the first noble truth, and it is also the first item on the Eightfold Noble Path of one's right view. The mm -hmm. right view is to keep looking at this stuff until we so, understand it completely. So there has to be this pain to... <laughs> to to become happy because that i see that when i be when i am in kind of very almost despair sometimes i i don't know you know and then after that this clarity can come and it it feels like such a relief and freedom comes with it yes have you ever heard of the story of the hot potato? I'm not sure. Okay, well, basically it can be a children's toy that they take the hot potato, but I don't want to hold it long, so I pass it to you. And you don't want to hold it, so you pass it to someone else, and so they pass the hot potato around. Mm -hmm. But we can think of it in the sense that right now there's no one but me with that hot potato. When I recognize that this potato is hot, what am I going to do with it? Drop it. I'm going to drop it. Exactly. <laughs> ah. But if I but if I get this potato and that I mistake the hot potato for a warm, a delicious, salty, oily french fries, then I'm likely to not drop it so quickly. In other words, I'm looking at the delight. I do not see the pain that this is hot. Mm -hmm. It should be put down. All right. Yeah. So uh, that's another way of talking about the fact that we don't see things clearly because we add elements from the past. In other words, he's not dealing with the fact that this potato right here, right now is too hot to handle and therefore it should be set down, set aside, dropped, relinquished, let go of, stop clinging, all of those. Kind of <laughs> uh, and so. But instead of doing that, we say, well, wait a minute. I, I used to find great delight. Let me look for the delight in this hot potato, and I'll keep it around thinking that it might be valuable, wholesome, and useful yeah. someday, where, in fact, all I'm getting is hot. Yeah. <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> over and over and over again. All we get out of it is hot. Yeah. And so now you're in the process of beginning to recognize how things really are. And when we do, when we really see how things really are, we do want to let it go. We won't move, don't, we can see the dukkha in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that can be in many, many different cases. In one, um, actually, it was a conversation that I had with one student who shall remain nameless. Uh, was a session on pornography. Uh-huh. Okay, and this, that pornography is that hot potato for these young men. Mm-hmm. All right? 
they look they're looking for the delight and the advantage and they can't see the heat that's burning them mm-hmm. yeah. and when they recognize that these porn movies are poorly done not uh, very artful and that uh, the people involved with it are not in wholesome states of mind and that there is uh, a kind of abuse going on and look at these uh, pornography tested with them And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You would verify that, that you would find watching videos of uh, pornography are disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're disgusting. You don't want to watch it, right? You're not going to sit there and watch an hour of it and then watch another one that's an hour long and then watch another one an hour long after that. It's just not enough already. No. Just <laughs> 10, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, right? And that's mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. yeah. All right. The videos themselves are disgusting. Mm-hmm. But the young men cannot see that disgusting quality of these videos. Mm-hmm. All they can see is the delight in them. They can't see that they're hot. That they're disgusting, that they're not worthy of our attention. And so, because of that, they uh, lust and seek pleasure out of it, and no pleasure can be found therein. Mm. Yeah. That, that uh, uh, those porn movies are very little fuel. Mm. Very, very little fuel in, in that, real fuel that's uh, useful, delightful. And yet that's what the young men want. They want to be delighted. They want to, uh, uh, to feel really good about themselves. And they wind up feeling really guilty about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that's just another example mm-hmm. of um, how we take delight in things and we can't see how dangerous they are, even when we've been warned that they're dangerous. And we'll say, all right, yes, we know society doesn't like every young man will close the door of his bedroom before he does his porn thing. And he'll point his laptop so that the door people, when they open the door, they can't see what he's looking at. And as soon as anybody comes in the room, he's going to close that laptop, turn it off. Right. Why? Because he's embarrassed because he knows that it's wrong from the rule perspective from the Siva Bhatta Paramasa, from our herding instinct, that the herd disapproves of mm-hmm. pornography. Mm-hmm. Right? But he individually has not seen the danger in it yet. Once he sees the danger, that danger will then override his delight. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a cost-benefit ratio. And when the kid is not uh, seeing things correctly, he sees that it's delightful with little cost. Mm. And so he discounts the cost. He knows the cost is there, but he tries to ignore the cost because the delight mm. is too much. Once we start focusing on, hey, I'm from suffering, and therefore I'm going to be on guard for what's painful mm. so that I don't have to deal with the wholesome, that's when the balance of it changes, and he recognizes that, oh, no, the dukkha really outweighs the pleasure on this. Mm-hmm. Let me leave this aside. Now, I'm using innocuous things for you, like porn, but for some young men, that's a tough subject. It's not innocuous. Mm-hmm. So you can apply that to the to your own uh, situations and things that are, in fact, um, work for you. To be able to see that dupa, to recognize, and and um, like I said before, I really congratulate you for being able to change your um, relationship and the attitude for your mom. That is so rare. That doesn't happen very much. But I'll tell you where it is commonly. It happens. It happens with people who are actually making good progress on the on the spiritual path when they begin to see the Dhamma. And the Buddha, in fact, for a number of reasons, including that his own mom died in childbirth with him. Okay. His mom died in childbirth, and so he was raised by his aunt, uh, who was also the mother of Ananda, who was born about 10 years or so after the Buddha. 
So he holds moms very dear. In one case, he says uh, that if you carried your mom and your dad on your shoulders around for the rest of your life, still you would not repay them completely for giving you birth. Mm. And that's a way of looking at it, that we owe our moms a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that in um, another uh, place, that a young man uh, who wishes to ordain uh, and become a bhikkhu, and I assume that that would be also with you if you uh, actually stay in the want long enough to uh, uh, and to seek and are accepted in full ordination. One of the things is is that you have to demonstrate that you have your mom's uh, permission to ordain. Now, in Thailand, that is so dead easy to do. In fact, I would say at least half the ordinations happen because mom's insistence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she requires that the young man go ordain. Uh, but in the West, because, uh, uh, let us say, seeking a life of happy seclusion uh, and living in a community of other very noble women is not something that is um, well cherished in the West. Many people will find it, uh, uh, let us say, time consuming uh-huh. to get their mom's permission. Okay. But you're already underway. You've gotten quite a lot of it already done. In other words, if you're going to get permission from mom to, to go off someplace else and ordain, you got to have a really good relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for people who don't have a good relationship with their mom, that's a, um, a, a, a hindrance. So in that regard, within the Buddha's uh, uh, dispensation, that uh, our reference to, our homage to our mother is a, a major thing, but just because we honor her, respect her, uh, uh, and care for her, doesn't mean we have to live under her thumb. Mm. That's an important point. But I can see again that you've mounted that one, that you're no longer uh, subject to her bad moods, that she's in fact been able to respond to your good moods. Yeah, yeah. I. I... Yeah, now I start thinking about that. I used to feel so guilty, what you're talking about now. I used to feel so guilty because I couldn't uh, respect her before. I I couldn't, um, uh, what you said about the the Buddha said that that they have given so much, the parents, Mm -hmm. and one should be perhaps grateful or, you know, <clears throat> and I couldn't do that. I I I was so hateful. I, I you know I, I it it, <laughs> I, it was impossible to see any of the goodness in what she did. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, and there One may of the ways, go ahead. No, there, there may be a little of that, not hate or anything, but that there has been something left that I uh, I feel uh, I'm not stuck with it, but we actually, we laugh a lot, me and my mother now when we talk, and she's, and she, she's usually kind of, she doesn't feel very well, and she's kind of uh, sick, but, but actually I, and this is a place in her I never reached before. I could never get my, I, I couldn't get that from her because it, it used to be so superficial what she did. She could laugh, and she, but I knew it wasn't genuine. Now mm. it, it is. And, and okay. it's, your relationship <laughs> with her has changed, which yeah. means that uh, the fuel for her change was in your change, but she still has had to change and that it's remarkable, but it is not unique in the following way. 
you probably heard old cliches about second childhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, when older people, when they when they finished with all of their, um, uh, and now that your mom is sick, she's kind of letting go of the responsibilities of being your mother, mm-hmm. and now allowing the relationship to become more equal, yeah. and or she has allowed you now in a way to nurture her. Yeah. So the roles have reversed now. Yeah, maybe, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so congratulations, because now this role reversal is much more healthy. Yeah. Than the original role that you had with her. Yes, absolutely. And so the roles have reversed, and she's allowed, she, in other words, she does not still have to uh, cling to the job of being your boss. Mm, yeah. I think that job. Th- this started happen a few years, actually perhaps ten years ago. She, before she never ever apologized for anything she did to anyone or anything. She, I, I never heard her apologize at all. And <laughs> about perhaps not 10 years, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, she started talking with me and in a way that, well, how, how did you experience me and so on? And she kind of wanted, I think she wanted, but I couldn't do it at that time. I, I, I was, it was too um, difficult. I, I, I just couldn't meet her in that. But I, uh, so I, I just said something, you know, but she actually wanted to talk. And I think it started for her at that time in a way. Uh, but it, it okay. was, I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> so. Okay, but, but you're, you're gaining those skills now and she's still around, so it's not too late. Uh, right, yeah. And, um, all right, now, um, when we have a, a big sense of self, then um, the reason that we have a sense of self is because the self needs to be protected. That's really, really funny, the way that it's described uh, in reincarnation, rebirth, uh, going to heaven and hell, and all of that kind of afterlife, is, is that this soul or self is so strong that it can survive death, but it cannot survive a verbal attack. <laughs> all right? Can't survive a verbal attack. That if some, you know, so if the bully comes to the, uh, to the, uh, to the wimp on the school grounds, and start picking on him, the the guy feels like he's really got to protect himself. Mm-hmm. But if he's got a, uh, but if he's got this belief from church that his self is everlasting and holy and uh, subject to the grace of God and all that kind of stuff, then why does he not understand that when he's under attack? The answer is is that the nature of the self is that it's that we feel under attack. That's the nature of being selfish. This is the self-preservation instinct. And what does the self-preservation instinct preserve? It preserves itself, right? And and it feels like it's constantly under attack. Yeah. Okay, so your mom is then feeling with this selfish position of being under attack which means she feels that if she admits wrongdoing, she's going to get more attacks. So she'd better hide all of her wrongdoing to protect herself from being under attack. This is quite natural. This is yeah. quite common. But it well, I is see that a- too. Now I understand that too, because that's, that's been so a big one in our family. There was always someone attacking someone all the time. It's true in every family. <laughs> Well, at least every family in Sweden and sure every family in the United States, okay, that that's right, everybody's on attack. They learn that from their moms when their moms attack them. You see, when the child is is born, 
the child is born and mom takes care she nurtures she feeds the baby with her with her breast milk she feeds her child with her um uh with her care she clothes she changes the diapers she does all of this stuff but when the child begins to show a spark of intelligence and a spark of consciousness now the mom changes from being nurturing into being critical don't do that yeah leave that alone don't draw on the wall sit down and do your abcs okay and so everything changes like that in the beginning we got nurturement from our parents and by, by the time we're three four five and especially by the time we're six it, the tables have churned mm. so with this criticism now is the main thing on the menu that's what the kids pick up. So when they're adults, you're going to be critical of each other in that yeah. family. But but also, I think I must say this is what confused me so much. She has always been so supportive. She has always been there. She has encouraged me. She mm -hmm. she never said I was bad. Well, she didn't stop nourishing you. She just added some criticism in. So she was. For up and down and yes. sometimes you didn't know how to handle it exactly that was the most difficult thing i guess because it was both and and then i couldn't but that's kind of the job dismiss. of a parent both of those jobs are the jobs of the parent <laughs> and they can either do it wisely or they can do it ignorantly in mm -hmm. other words when it's time to be nourishing many parents are critical when it's time to be critical they become nurturing instead Mm. All boys will be boys. Yes, you did rape yeah. that girl, but it's all right. We'll yeah. we'll take care of this somehow. We're family, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Right. So they're critical <laughs> when they makes... should be nurturing, and nurturing when they should be critical. Because that they... makes sense. Because <laughs> this has been so confusing for me, so very confusing all my life with her. <clears throat> Yeah. Okay, so now you see where the fuel for your own confusion has come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so now that you're cutting that fuel off and getting a new fuel, and that new fuel is investigation. Yeah. Look at closely what's going on. And mm -hmm. by doing so, you can say, all right, we can do things differently now. I don't have to deal with her with the confusion that she taught me. Yeah. I can deal with her with joy instead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I've kind of been doing that, but there was still this confusion in me around the whole thing. Well, it takes a while to weather away. Like I said, the root will stay long mm. time, but every time it pops a shoot up, you cut that off, and eventually that root will die. Yes. I told you that story last time. Yes, you did. <laughs> okay. Yes. So every time that confusion comes up knowing that you've already had great success at dealing with it mm. so don't lament that it's still there mm. be happy that you can catch it when it comes up that it's not going to come up and overwhelm you and put you back into a state of confusion right yes <laughs> and not only that but that confusion will basically generally have a bodily sensation yeah. which means now we can use the breath to, to breathe into that area and break that blood chemistry situation up and, and change your blood chemistry with the deep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then I get to the body too, because, and that's, yeah, that's something I, 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 I tend to cut off. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Now, one of the things that I find so powerful in one of the suttas about when the monk is truly on the path, then if he actually does a wrongdoing, or let us say he breaks one of the Paddy Monk rules, that it is his intention to confess that to either his teacher or to some elder monk, someone who is a great deal older and a lot more panza than him, the, the temple abbot, his teacher, you don't do it with your peers, but you go to some authority and confess and say, I have done this mm -hmm. with the intention of rehabilitation, not punishment. Mm -hmm. You see, in fact, the rehabilitation is much more the quality from the parent of nurturing and punishment is from the critical parent. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. All right. And so we will admit wrongdoing because uh, it's very, very rare for a monk to get thrown out of the Sangha. Generally, every mistake is repairable if it is repaired. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so that confession is so valuable for the monks. Look how valuable it is also for us to get things off our chest. That if I've said something wrong to a student, I should apologize. And I do. I like it, in fact. That's one of the things that um, I, I, I sent a, for something that happened long ago, I sent a nice uh, belated, um, he, let us call it heavy duty apology to Danny <laughs> about something that happened, I, I don't know where, um, way back when. So um, I made an, a statement to him then that I recognized that it, it was shameful. And so I, I confessed it to him and I said, I apologize for treating you that way. And he says, oh, you don't have to apologize. You're my very best friend. You're such an excellent Dhamma teacher. You don't have to apologize. And my response back to him was, <laughs> Danny. You will not talk me out of this apology. It's just simply too delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and it is. It's delicious to get that stuff off your chest. Yes. If we know we've done wrong, let's finish mm -hmm. it off and get it, get finished with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I've been doing that for many years now uh, to authorities, and it's so scary. And I, I expect punishment in a way, but that doesn't happen even with them, those who, who have the well, power. Well, this is actually one of the foundational points of AA also. That's yes. why the system generally tends to work. It's because it's got such beautiful qualities built into yeah. it that completely um, uh, mesh with let us say wise thinking mm. and therefore is going to mesh completely with the buddha dhamma uh -huh. right but in fact in the 12-step program they'll actually send people back to uh to apologize to the people that they've really screwed over mm -hmm. and when when you're a drunk you tend to really hurt people and so mm. that requires an apology yeah <laughs> yes yeah i know i know that's <laughs> one of the 12 steps on the program yeah, I didn't know. Okay. Uh, yeah, I didn't know this was so closely related to the Buddha's teaching. <laughs> that, that's great to hear. Yeah. Because those things are, are the things that are actually working. <laughs> Why? Yeah, that we don't have to carry that burden of our own guilt around anymore. We can get mm -hmm. it off our chest. We can let go. We don't recognize that keeping that is like keeping a hot potato. Yeah. The deliciousness of it is, is that I have self-protection. It's like a tool that I use to protect myself. This lie that I say, mm -hmm. that I didn't do it. Yeah, nothing to hide anymore. <laughs> and now there's nothing to hide anymore. Exactly. So I don't have to hide. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. So with that, we can say that too we understand to be in relationship to the cause and effect or the fuel that originally we thought the fuel for that fire was self-protection. But now that we recognize there's no self to protect and that it's joyful to get that stuff off our chest, that actually is a hot potato. It is not warm, delicious French fries salted in oil. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hot potato to carry around our own guilt of wrongdoing. Mm. Yeah. And it generally affects the relationship. So now your mom, she's ready to get that off her chest, to come clean with you. Mm -hmm. And to have a much better relationship with you. And I congratulate you both for that. That's so beautiful. That's mm -hmm. so great. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose then she's going to be okay when you um, uh, pack your bags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let us say bag, one bag. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> that would be really great. I'm sure that you would fit into um, a loka monastery. Uh huh. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> it looks like a really nice group of ladies. Yes, it, it did. It, it looks like wow. <laughs> mm hmm. And um, the best part in this regard is, is that at least you can see that in a photograph. Yeah. And these photographs are rare, but the actual events are not. Mm. There there is friendship among the uh, Asian community of women. Mm. And I'm not sure how many there are now, but there was close to 100 women at Watsuan Mo back in the 80s. And there's probably about 50 there now. Uh-huh. But they're all old Thai ladies. They've been there for years. It's a community of uh, healthy living. Okay. But not a lot of photos. No, not, no. Not, right. There are, uh, I, I haven't seen any, <laughs> any photos <laughs> there. No. <laughs> uh -huh. And so it's good that you can get that, that website. So, uh, the joy that I want to give you about that website is, is that it is only an example of dozens of other places that are just like that. Okay. <laughs> That's really nice to hear. <laughs> yes, dozens of places. But that one, that one's a gem. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you might um, uh, get the email and, and uh, send an email to the abbot and give her a paragraph about what you've been doing and uh, ask mm -hmm. when the time is right, can you come for a visit? Yeah, I can. I know what the answer would do, be anyway, but it's nice to do that little formality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So introduce yourself. I, I encourage you to do that. Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is really exciting. <laughs> oh. Well, in that regard, the best that I can do is be kind of like um, something as a cross between a midwife and a matchmaker. <laughs> okay. Closer, closer, and closer to being a matchmaker. <laughs> In your case. In the beginning, more of a midwife. <laughs> but I don't know how far that goes because it's more like taking a dump <laughs> than giving. <laughs> So I guess we could add the third one in there is the guy who gives enemas. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's kind of uh, matchmaker time to help you to find a place that's going to be useful for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is also so... <clears throat> uh, when I... Many years ago when I first started the meditation and went to retreats and so on, there was some special experience I used to had, uh, have around this. And it's back now. It, it's back. It's like I'm back on that, uh, in that direction I, I was. I was off <laughs> for, for uh, years, but now I'm kind of into that again. And it's, it's like, oh, <laughs> perhaps it's... It's okay, okay, continue to add the fuel to the fire, continue to uh, develop sukha, pleasure, mm. enjoyment. Wow, this is really nice right now. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's happening again. <laughs> I've been, it's been on the right way all along, but it kind of, it, it stopped a little. I, <laughs> I was still there, but, but it. Now it's uh, things are happening <laughs> now. I, uh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's keep in mind this whole idea of everything requires a fuel. Mm-hmm. 
that a child is not going to learn to play the piano unless he practices the piano. Yeah. In that regard, you're not going to learn joy if you don't practice it. Right, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'll that's what doing. we're doing is the development of joy, and I'm glad to see that you're fully underway with that. So that's mm -hmm. really great. Yeah. Uh, thank, all thanks to you. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have known how to do this otherwise. So, yeah. Well, it's, keep going. Yes, absolutely. I will. It ain't over. The roots aren't dead yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll yes. see you later, okay? Yes, Agnes, this has been delightful. I really enjoy talking with you. Yeah, me too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>